Welcome to Who You Calling Crazy. This is a unique mental health podcast. We are erasing the stigma and elevating and normalizing dialogue around mental health. Of course, we'll be sharing practical therapy tips, but most importantly, we'll be diving into the stories and vulnerability of people you know or want to know. I'm your host, Juliette Cunley. This episode is sponsored by the Renfrew Center for Eating Disorders, located in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you or someone you know is struggling with an eating disorder, know that recovery is possible. Whether in person or virtually, the Renfrew Center is here to provide expert, evidence-based care with a wide range of programming for individuals and families. To learn more about their services or to schedule an assessment, visit Renfrew, R-E-N-F-R-E-W, center.com or call 1-800-RENFREW. So hi, I'm Ashley Moser. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified eating disorder specialist. I work with the Renfrew Center of Charlotte and I'm a regional assistant vice president. So I oversee clinical and administrative operations, but I spend my life and my professional life, you know, working with people with eating disorders and trying to advance that mission. Of course, being on more of the preventative side if possible, knowing that these disorders could be so insidious and so deadly, um, and also really trying to get ahead of some of these messages and try to change the culture. So that's my big picture goal. Any personal connections with people with clinical eating disorders or anything else that might've drawn you to the field, kept you in it? What can you share with us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I've had exposure to to friends and, and family with eating disorders over the years. It wasn't necessarily my driving factor into becoming a clinician, but it was definitely a soft spot for me. I had close friends in college and, and just saw how much societal pressure, at least at my vantage point then knowing now that eating disorders are so much more complex and are contributed to by so many things. But at the time, seeing the societal pressure piece really impact family and friends and watching like that thin ideal really wear away at people and watch them become less of who they were and limit who they could be. And I think that was a piece that always stuck with me. So then when I had the opportunity to take the clinical work that I had gone into and do and bring this piece there, it just felt like such a natural fit. And it felt like a a homecoming in a strange way, but it was putting the passion and the profession together. And I think that's what's kept me there the whole way along. Right. I share a similar story. Not, you know, I think any of us that are born with a uterus in this world are going to experience and and not to discount because we know it affects males as well, but just for our experience, just being part of the diet culture that is the air we breathe. And so even though it hasn't, you know, crossed the line, quote unquote, into a clinical eating disorder, it's definitely relatable, the constant messaging that you're having to fight against or unlearn. And like you said in the beginning, really reevaluating my own relationship with food and body and exercise. And that doesn't ever really end. It doesn't. And you would think it would being in the field, we would have it all figured out, right? Like we do the work, so we have to have the answers and you don't because as life progresses, the messages continue to stay and some you work through and some you notice, wow, it's popping up and you have to renegotiate as life transitions because as you get older and as bodies change and as life changes, there's just a different sense of renegotiating that piece for yourself. That's right. And I do get that question sometimes that as a therapist in general, and then specific to this context that we we must have it all figured out, which is a crock of shit. <laughs> you know, that is really <laughs> the point of this podcast is really 
who are you calling crazy? Like what you mean is human and we're all human. We're human first. So, but I yes. like what you're saying. I like that word, just renegotiating it. And the mm-hmm. difference is, is being able to recognize it when it pops up. Absolutely. And I think that's where, you know, having a clinical or a counseling background gives you the awareness. I wouldn't say it makes you necessarily not be predisposed. It doesn't necessarily make you bulletproof by any sure. means, but it definitely gives you that awareness and it definitely makes you more cautious and thoughtful about how you interact with food, bodies, relationships with other people. And then of course, how that impacts your relationship with yourself too. Yes. And so are you the person like, like I am that's once you've been doing this for so long too, the hyper-awareness around all the commentary. Yes. I mean, yes. cause sometimes, and I will fight the good fight as much as I can and, and try to redirect conversations, call out certain things. And, you know, and then at some point my husband's like, all right, Julia, like reel it in. <laughs> Are you that person too? I mean, it, it is, it's hard not to notice it everywhere. It is. It's very hard. And I, I think where I get the most like, okay, we've had enough um, <laughs> is definitely my family. Cause I will say, okay, everyone, let's make sure we're taking care of our nutritional needs. We're having our three meals, our two snacks and trying to keep everyone on a meal schedule that I think is more normalized. They maybe don't think that, right. or, you know, they have opinions or beliefs about food. And I tend to be very quick to <laughs> yep. reframe everyone's experience with food to try to make it more neutral, to try to make, you know, comments about body more neutral. I especially feel more of a push to do that now being a mother as well. I think that's been a big push that you don't want those messages to be infiltrated as much as possible. You try to block them and protect them. But I think family of origin more than anything else, they're like, okay, we get it. You work in eating disorders and you don't want to talk about these things. You have a very special way that you want to talk about these things. Uh But I'm still always on my soapbox trying to get everyone bought into these ideas because I know how powerful and impactful it can be, but it's hard to be the soapbox person. every family gathering. (laughs) And even though we've done it and do it repeatedly, people still slip. And so then, you know, it it gives us a little experience of what our clients feel too, when they try to kind of educate their support people around what type of language is or isn't helpful. And people, even those that who try their best and who mean well, our default is the diet culture. It is. And I think having that understanding and that grace that they're trying, I think is is helpful for them to continue to want to try. Because I agree, it is very innate and ingrained at this point. And yeah. so to do something different takes a lot of effort and consciousness. And I think I like to give you know, patients and clients that perspective sometimes too, because sometimes it can feel very invalidating and bring up a lot of emotion, which it should. It's very hard to hear someone that you love and care about say things that could be potentially hurtful to your recovery. But we also have to be conscious of their process too, and the grace and the effort and the, and just the persistence and the constant work that they're putting in to try to do something different too. That's right. That's right. So being a mother, I'm glad you brought that up because I think about that a lot too. It feels like it takes on this different heaviness, responsibility. Mm-hmm. And again, speaking for myself, I, I do, I carry a lot of pressure around that because yeah. I'm quote, again, I'm quote, supposed to know the right <laughs> way to do this. And still also knowing that me even having perfect language, if I did, cannot be the sole protector if they have other predispositions for an eating disorder, for example. But I carry that pressure. Think about it a lot with two daughters. And I imagine it's for you have a son and a daughter, right? I do. Yes. And I think I fight that societal pressure to want to be more aware of it for my daughter than for my son. And I push back against that a lot. Even within myself, I notice the, the bias to be more conscious with her than with him. And I'm like, no, this needs to go both ways. And I need to make sure that I'm demonstrating this for all. But I I watched 
them watch me. I watch them watch me get ready in the mornings and I watch them watch how I interact with myself, my food. I mean, they're always watching, yeah. <laughs> which is the, the good and bad part of motherhood <laughs> sometimes. But that constant pressure to not even just like say the right thing, but to do the right thing and yes. to model the right thing, that pressure. Yeah. It's constantly on yeah. my mind too. And you're right. The, I mean, the modeling is, we know in particular, the mom's relationship with her body and food is a big impact on children's relationship and therefore with their own bodies and food. So, and, and there are times where admittedly, I know I don't get the language right, or I'll say something that I'm like, oh gosh, whether it's uh, about you know, I'm really, really aware of morality, right? So I don't ever say good food, mm. bad food, but it, it might mm-hmm. be something just I'm trying to think of an example, dessert. I mean, there's for a long time, we serve dessert with the meal to mm-hmm. kind of take away this idea that like, it's just a treat that you earn at the only if you reward, eat, mm-hmm. correct, a reward. Yeah. But sometimes that, you know, I'll catch myself kind of being like, Ooh, I don't, you know, they already had X, Y, and Z today. And, and, and then I get all in my head and it's just, <laughs> it's again, it's human, but I have to sort yes. of back off and remind myself that it's not that I can't actually intervene in certain ways that I have to kind of let things unfold. And that by putting mm-hmm. too much focus and emphasis in certain ways, that can also be just as um, not damaging, but just as impactful negatively. <laughs> mm-hmm. So anyway, it's a constant dance. It is because it is our jobs to feed our children and it's our jobs to nourish them. It's been our jobs before day one. Yeah. And so, you know, you take that job very seriously. And then when you're thinking about all of the ways that you could screw that, yep. up, it just feels like you're kind of dancing through landmines. But I, I know we fall into patterns where, you know, to try to encourage like vegetable and fruit completion with, you know, young kids. Okay, well then you can have the dessert. And I'm like, oh, I hate this. And I know I just did it because I can't yep. get them to eat fruits and veggies otherwise. <laughs> and so, but it's, so it's the back and forth of like, I need the fruits and veggies, but I also need to not treat the sweets and carbohydrates and fats as desserts and as rewards. So it's, you feel like you get it wrong, even when you're trying to get it right. Exactly. But the hope is, is that, you know, at least if there's a balance and at least if there's some neutrality and at least there is some flexibility with how we're teaching that, that maybe that will land in a good spot eventually. And so I hope other people listening to will hear you're talking about two professionals who have been in the industry for eight plus years and still have that dance, still get it wrong. And that that's okay. That there's, if there's a balance, if there's that overall neutrality and overall intentionality behind it, that we're doing the best we can, that's enough. Yeah. I feel that in my soul after you just said that it is enough. (laughs) It it has to be. It has to be. So we've got this piece of yes, language matters and modeling matters. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned before, that there's such a, so the biopsychosocial, all these other factors that can contribute to an eating disorder. And often people don't know that there is, there can be such a strong genetic component. People are always like, what? When I, and I don't remember, I don't know exactly what the stat is now, but I used to like what the percentage used to be of if you had someone in your family who had an eating disorder and people are always taken aback by that. Yeah, you're right. I don't remember the exact statistic at this point, but yes, you're right on. I mean, that genetic component can be so strong. And I think what's hard for people to understand sometimes is that the genetic component doesn't necessarily have to be present. So I think there's a lot of people who may have that predisposition, but they may not have a family member who's actually engaging in eating disorder symptoms, but there may still be that predisposition there. And I think we also see it sometimes with substance use disorders. So if there's a predisposition in the family for that as well, and and for mood disorders sometimes as well. And so I think, I think sometimes it's like, well, if it's genetic, you know, who in my family has it? Why haven't I seen it? Where is it? (laughs) And as we know, you can't see eating disorders, right? Like they don't, they don't, it's not something you can look at somebody and be aware of and know that they're 
experiencing. And depending on your family's, you know, closeness and relationship with being vulnerable and open, you may not have that family history to know who struggled. But yes, I think that genetic component is always really interesting, especially in generational patterns and trying to break those up and be the generational pattern breaker, which we see a lot of our, you know, patients wanting to be. You're right. And because especially in certain generations before ours, speaking of stigma in general around mental illness, but maybe especially with things like eating disorders. I mean, no one was talking about it. No one knew what it was. No, no. It was part of weight management. It was part of culture. It was part of being a woman. It was part of being attractive. I mean, it was, you know, fill in the blank. And so to take that norm and to now call it a disorder has got to be a really big fundamental shift for a lot of people. And I try to take that empathetic vantage point versus getting caught in wanting to get my soapbox out (laughs) and change their beliefs. I try to have that empathetic vantage point because it is a big change. We're going from what was what we thought things were and how we thought things should be to now calling that disordered. And that that mind shift takes a a lot of time and practice for people. Another thing that I I hear a lot when people are discouraged in recovery. And and so kind of just going down that path of yeah, people ask a lot for one thing. Do I think recovery is possible? And I'm sure you you guys hear this in treatment all the time too. So I'd love to just hear your answer in that. I mean, obviously I believe we both do we would not do this work if we didn't see it and know it to be possible. But just what what is your response to that when people just feel so hopeless or like it's just not possible? I mean, I, I very much do feel that it's possible and I have very much had the privilege to see that it's possible. So it's one thing to believe it's another thing to see. And I get where there's a lot of people out there that are like, if I haven't seen it, I haven't experienced it. It's hard for me to like really have that hope. So I think a lot of the work that I've done over the years is saying like, you know, I'm willing to be the person to hold that hope for you. Like you don't have to have it yet. Let me be the person to hold that. I'll sit with the hope because I know how hard that is right now because you can't see it. You can't feel it. You can't touch it. And as we do this work, let's see if I can start shifting some of that over to you. Mm. Because it's so hard to have hope and see that things can be better and different when things are so dark and challenging and they feel so hopeless. So I think I try to be like, okay, you don't have to do that. (laughs) You don't have to be hopeful. But let me be that and let me help you come into that. And we can share that as things go on and go forward. But I've had the privilege to watch many, many people recover and, and move forward in their lives and have the things that they dreamed about in that office and and actually have today. So I've watched it. I've seen it. And I, I think being someone who can say, I've seen it and I can hold the hope for you yeah. seems to help people buy in a little bit to the fact that, well, if it was possible for somebody else, and she seems like she's really passionate about this, maybe, maybe it could be possible for me too. I think that's the beauty of therapeutic relationships is, I mean, I love that verbiage that you used to just uh, let me hold it. Let me be that for you. Let me, and that, that is the beauty of that dynamic in my opinion. And that even that we can represent, but also the, the therapeutic space, like our literal office, you know, I'll say that sometimes with people like leave it in here if you need to, whatever the, it might be, let this mm-hmm. be your safe container. Let me hold this for you. So I just want to highlight again, for people listening that, that value in the therapeutic relationship, that's really beautiful. Because sometimes I think that it's easy for us to fall into the hopelessness sometimes too. I mean, we're talking about a disorder that has all of these multiple contributing factors that are compounded by systemic issues that it feels like it's a kind of an uphill battle sometimes. So I think I hold the hope for myself too, I think, selfishly to some degree to keep doing the work, to keep fighting the fight and to keep knowing that change can be possible. It's slow and it's steady, but it's different now eight years later than it was when I, I know when I initially started off in the field. 
which gives me more hope again as, as well. So I think I hold the hope for them, but I think I hold the hope a little bit for myself too. That's so true. That's so true. And I think as long as we're still doing that, that means that we care about the work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely not the kind of work that you can, you can phone in. No, (laughs) no. And I also just think about like how people define recovery too. That just came up for me Mm -hmm. as we're talking about it, that I think that that can be unique from individual to individual. And so what people want to know, I think generally they want to believe that recovery means fully cured, whatever that looks like. Yeah. And no eating disorder thoughts, no urges ever again, this thing left in the dust. And again, I'll answer for me and then would love to hear from you. And I've seen that I've seen where people it's not uh, linear. It's not easy. It's not quick, but they have gotten to that point. And I've seen people where recovery for them means they have a greater awareness of when those urges pop up and have a pause to be able to choose a different reaction to avoid symptom symptomology or whatever it might be. And so I think for people to know that they have permission to define recovery for them, what are your thoughts? Oh, I, I love what you just said. I, I think recovery is rooted, at least for me, for in my definition, in that awareness that you that you just described, okay. that ability to know when my emotions are rising and when I want to utilize some sort of, you know, eating disorder behavior to manage those emotions. As humans, like we're, we're looking for relief. We don't want to feel pain and discomfort and anger and anxiety. And those emotions are just part of the human experience. And just when you think it's not, it will, the universe will throw you another wave and it will come and it will hit. But I think the, when I think about recovery, I think about that being, you know, you've got the waves, you've got the difficult life transitions, but you have the awareness that when those things pop up and when those emotions get heightened, that you know that that urge may be there, that you know that there may be that, you know, desire to go to that short-term relief of using the eating disorder behavior, but you have the choice to do something different. And I think that's the power that I want people to have versus feeling like they're stuck in these like really automatic patterns. Like when this happens, I have no choice but to do this because this is all I have. This is all I know this is all I do versus I'm in this, I feel this and I could do that or I could do this or this or this. And I'm going to choose the one that's most in line with who I want to be, what I value and the life that I want for myself. Mm-hmm. So I think choice and power and yes. <laughs> authority to, to make those kinds of changes in your life. That's the part that I think for recovery really resonates with me. That, that's right. And then the more you do that over time, you're creating a new neural network. Absolutely. That says we don't just do that old thing anymore automatically. What are, can you just, let's speak to body acceptance, you know, self-love body love gets a bad rep. I think that can feel really foreign and intimidating Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. not realistic for people. So I tend to use the words like compassion and acceptance, but it's really hard for people to grasp when they've been in such a negative relationship with themselves and their bodies that seems so far off. And again, so hard, not attainable sometimes. What language do you use around loving oneself, finding self-compassion, whatever it might be? Yeah. It's really hard because I agree. I think the the buzzwords of body positivity and, you know, body neutrality, even, I think there's just this sense of like, it's like this thing, but it doesn't really apply to me or it's this thing, but it, it must apply for other people, but not necessarily mm-hmm. for myself. So I, when I think about trying to shift some of that dynamic for, for someone and, and I mean, gosh, anyone really, because like we said, anyone can be really disposed to any of this. I really try to think about how do you 
take care of your body? How do you nourish your body? How do you care for it? And I think that caring for our bodies can move us towards a better place for our bodies, but how do we care for them even if we don't necessarily have the positive or the neutral language to attach to it? So can, you know, you wear clothes that feel comfortable, that have fabrics that feel, you know, that do something soft and kind to your nervous system? Can you find lotions that have scents that make you feel calm and connected? You know, can you choose hair brushes that feel good on your scalp. So it's starting off with these very small concrete things that don't cost a lot of money and don't require a lot of time and don't require like, you know, 16 years in therapy to get there to be able to do like, how can you start with these small places where you can care for your body? And I I specifically didn't say food because food will be part of it, but that might not be where you are right here, right, right here and right now. Caring for your body with food might not be one of those attainable steps, but how can you start doing some of those pieces to care for your body, hoping that that will then change that relationship because nurturing your body will change the relationship. Shaming, blaming, and hating your body will not. I like that really practical, tangible, intentional ways. So like the hairbrush example, that one's really jumping out to me. I'm like, I have the same hairbrush I've had for probably 12 years. The thing is nasty. Like the little (laughs) ends are falling off. Like that's a really good example though, of just why not? Why not upgrade this thing that then will make me feel like I'm making a gesture to nurture myself. Absolutely. And I think sometimes like those sensations, I mean, just thinking yes. of different sensations on your scalp and how like there's so much tension, I feel like held in our heads and our scalps and, and being able to release some of that even through an act of self-care. And I even challenge myself to use self-care because that's another one of those buzzwords I that know. I feel like, you know, the bubble baths and the bath bombs and everyone rolls their eyes and it's caring for your body, not necessarily self-care sometimes. Yes. Mm-hmm. That is a tough one. I know. Uh, my colleague has started calling it soul care, which Ooh. really hits differently. <laughs> Yes. That deeper, what do you really need? I don't know. That just jumped out to me too, but yes. So, and then the idea is the more I get, think it goes back to choice again. I mean, we think about how many hundreds of times a day we can choose something that's more nurturing to ourselves or or our senses. And the more collectively we can do that and kind of recognize those choices and make that choice that perhaps over time that starts to shift our relationship with ourself and our bodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it feels small. And it feels like I'm fighting this huge uphill battle with my eating disorder and my body image. And you told me to go buy a hairbrush and like, (laughs) I get it. It feels very small. It feels kind of silly when you say it that way. However, I think when we set these lofty goals and we think that we're going to make big sweeping changes, if we don't reach those milestones, we then tell ourselves that we can't succeed and we can't do it. And it adds to those feelings of hopelessness and helplessness. So that's why I start with a hairbrush. That's why I start with clothes that have textures that feel good to the skin and and lotions that smell good. Because I I think caring for ourselves can't always mean choosing the food that we want in the moment, but could it mean choosing something that feels good in another way? Yeah. And yeah, body positivity. I just also want people to hear that I don't think there is one human in the world that is 100% body positive every day. There's just just no way. Please come to the podcast and educate us all. I've yet to yet to encounter that myself. And I and I and whether you come from a, a background of disordered eating, whether you come from a background of absolutely, you know, not struggling with that aspect of life, I don't think that body image is fixed. And I think it's very much influenced by so many factors. And to think that positivity is a big word and a big label to put on something that is constantly being renegotiated, like we said earlier. And the idea is that even on those bad days whether again, we're talking about a bad hair day or a truly, I feel uncomfortable and icky in my skin day and everything in between. The hope is that we, we know that those things are temporary 
that they were not stuck in that permanent state of feeling and that there are things we can do to, I don't want to say bounce back, but to kind of, like you said, to renegotiate, to get to a place that's a little bit closer to neutral. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that, yeah, because it isn't fixed and it is something that kind of ebbs and flows through the day sometimes, let alone week and a lifetime. And, and that we want that relationship with the body to not necessarily be the thing that holds you back and have it not necessarily be the thing that keeps you from the things that you want or think that you deserve. And I think that's, that's the big picture message that we try to get across, but it's a lot easier said than done. That's right. So my, the, the nugget around that, that you and I probably say out loud in our sleep, because we've been saying it for so long is that your worth <laughs> has nothing to do with your body weight, size, or shape. That's it. Period. <laughs> Period. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else you'd add just in general to this, this overall conversation around relationships with food and body? How much time you got now? <laughs> I know. Let's do round two, three, four. I know. We have a whole series. Yeah, it's just such a big topic. And I and I think, you know, regardless of if you identify with an eating disorder or if you just identify as being a human, I think relationship with food and body is important. And so I really love that this is a topic for your podcast to decrease stigma, decrease shame, increase people's willingness to be open to this. Because I do think as a as a generation, as a society, we struggle, we're struggling. And I think our relationship with ourselves and our bodies and our food are not immune to any of that. So whether you identify is like, oh, this is an eating disorder episode. So it's for people with eating disorders. I would ask you to kind of expand that thought process because I think everyone is struggling in different ways. And I think relationships with food and body are really at an all-time interesting point that most people are negotiating that. So I just encourage everybody to kind of open their minds and open their hearts a little bit about taking a look at the relationship with food and body, as well as being open to the fact that you know this could impact anyone and everyone and that that's okay. But we yes. need to be open to the sense that everyone needs support around these things, not just the small section of people who identify. Okay. And I also am noticing that you and I both say relationships with X and that's something I say all the time, but I don't know that the like regular person listening might really understand what we mean in that. Mm. So just kind of to, to, because we've said it throughout this whole podcast. So when I say things like that and I use it with mood, what's your relationship with your anxiety? I like that. Your scale, the mirror. I mean, you, we are in relationship with all the things. And so it's just like if you're in a relationship with a human, what's the dynamic? What's the dynamic? Is there, sometimes there's a power dynamic. This thing has power mm-hmm. over you. Sometimes there's this tension and this push and pull. And so anything else you'd add to just what we mean by what's what our relationship with food and body? Is. Yeah, I really, I really like that you took the time to slow down on that because you're so right. It's such a clinical way to approach it versus I don't think the average person says like my relationship with my body is this, but I like that you slowed down with that. I, the only thing I think I would add is that, you know, relationships change. And I think that's another piece of why I feel like that it's important to talk about it as a relationship, because again, as we're talking about holding hope and as we're talking about renegotiation, I think my theme today has been that nothing's fixed and static and that everything's in motion. Relationships are as well. So if your relationship with your body, your relationship with food is in fact a relationship, there is a change that could be possible. And Mm -hmm. that's the part that I think I want to hit on. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Ashley. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Absolutely. Thank you, Julia. This was wonderful. So who are you calling crazy? I think you mean human. We are removing the stigma, y'all. Say it loud and proud. Yep, I go to therapy. Who are you calling crazy?